Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. We're glad you joined us for another edition. And on this one, I, I think we've got a real treat for you. Um, Jerry Eisenberg, who is a Hall of Fame uh, writer, he is, in fact, in 16 Hall of Fame, so he's ahead of me. I, I know I've been a couple, but he's, he's, I, I've hit, I hit double digits last year, but he's in 16, so that's pretty impressive, including the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And the reason we're talking to Jerry uh, is that his book, Once There Were Giants, it, it, which is about the great heavyweights from 1962 to 1997, is being re-released, uh, and uh, it's, it's already available for pre-sale now on Amazon.com and uh, BarnesandNoble.com, and then it will be at, go on full sale on April uh, 27th. And it's being re-released because of uh, the 50th anniversary of the uh, first Ali Frazier fight, which uh, was held 50 years ago on March 8th. And, um, uh, and so this book, which is a delightful book, uh, gave us a good chance uh, to talk to Jerry, and you're going to see that interview uh, on this show. And I am going to endeavor to answer your questions that you sent to me on Twitter, at Al Bernstein, and we love that you send them. Uh, and uh, to help me do that and uh, other things, we have uh, my co-host, Trip Mitchell. Hi, Trip. How are you? I am doing great, and a great weekend of fights last weekend. And the Oscar Valdez uh, big upset over Burchelt, and uh, that will lead to our first question about the 130-pound division because that really is becoming a great division in boxing. And Maestro, self-proclaimed, asked, <laughs> has 130 made an argument recently for being the most exciting division in boxing. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, I don't know if I'm ready to anoint it the most exciting in boxing. However, it is one of, it's really good. And it's one of all the divisions from about, you know, all the lighter weight divisions in boxing, I think are absolutely terrific right now. I'm um, not being a cheerleader. I'm just saying, uh, stating a fact, I think. Um, and this 130 pound division is a perfect example to wit. Last week's fight with uh, uh, Oscar Valdez jumping up from featherweight uh, and upsetting Miguel Burchelt. You know, it was a one of the best performances I think I've seen in the last three or four years by any boxer. Oscar Valdez boxed beautifully, uh, a style that he is not necessarily known for, but has worked on with Eddie Reynoso. Uh, and he also uh, showed great power in knocking out uh, Burchelt, uh, a knockout that... Uh, it made us worry about Miguel Burchell for a little while, and hopefully he's, he's doing much better now. Uh, but that division also, uh, we saw a week before that, Shavrat uh, Rakhimov uh, fighting Jojo Diaz in a draw in what was a very entertaining fight. Uh, Diaz lost his title on the scales, which adds some more drama to the division. And we know that Carl Frampton is going to be challenging Jamel Herring for his uh title very soon that fight got rescheduled and then you have you know still Javante Davis who could who has a title at 130 uh and can fight at that division we don't know where he's going to fight next he's of course uh, a very big star in the sport of boxing and then you have Shakur Stevenson who may be a budding superstar who's in that very same division and finally Chris Colbert who 
was very impressive in his last outing. Uh, I had the pleasure of announcing that fight. And he is a fighter to watch. So when you put all that together and add a few other ingredients in that division, it's really special. Well, that's that's great. And uh, I know you had a good weekend, and we've got a great guest for this week's show. Let's ask uh, another question. Jay Unboxing said, what are the handful of things you look at when judging a fight? How does it differ while on air and when watching at home or in the crowd? Yeah, you know, I well, first to deal with the part whether it differs um, – I don't, it's, you know, if you're in the crowd, of course, you can't. I watch it on the monitor uh, when I'm announcing the fight. So I'm more attuned to that part of it. Uh, I think you can see the same fight. Uh, I actually personally think watching it on the TV version is better because you see everything closer and you can see it more, more readily. So uh, though the judges are right at ringside and, you know, they have about as good a view as you can have. Uh, I, the, my view on scoring of a boxing match, and certainly we've had more than our share of controversies. Um, just re, our fight last week, uh, some people felt that uh, the scoring in Adrian Broner um, uh, in his fight uh, was too wide a margin. Uh, if you thought Broner won, it would be by a smaller margin. Many, many critical uh, of that. Uh, Giovanni Santiago um making it what I thought was a very close fight. But uh, so that was an example, uh, one of many in recent time, which uh, it's generated a little controversy. Now, uh, I think scoring of a fight comes down to one important thing. And one thing only, punches landed. Uh, I know there's a, a portion of the rule book that says ring generalship. I actually think that's irrelevant. Uh, in every other sport, we don't care how you got to the result. We don't care if a home run was windblown. We don't care if a touchdown pass was tipped by a defender. It's still, you know, that touchdown still is worth six points. That homer is still worth one run plus whoever is on base. Uh, in boxing, landing punches is the ultimate goal. So I think how many punches you landed and or how well they were landed is all that should instruct judges on how they score a round. Uh, and so for me, it comes down to that. And uh, I think you have to have that tabulation in your head to know who's landing more punches and which is more effective. And the other thing, of course, is knockdowns. The knockdown uh, will, will obviously benefit, as it should, the fighter that scores the knockdown. So to me, scoring is a simple... Not easy, but simple. Um, you know, it, it, it purely equates to that. And I'm not saying that you take the CompuBox numbers and use those to score the fight. I'm not saying that. Those, those numbers are a guideline. It's what's in your head as a judge. What do I see? Um, and I made this suggestion once a long time ago, and I could stick with it. I personally think, you know, for a while in amateur boxing, I tried scoring by numbers with people punching it. I think each judge should have one big giant, um, uh, you know, button over here, a big button over here. One is for one fighter, one is for the other, and they can touch that button as they want. Print, uh, uh, hit the button to print a, 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 a uh, printout at the end of the round and look at it just for their own guidance to remind them what they were thinking during the round. They don't even have to go by that printout, but it will remind them who they thought was landing more punches. Um, 
you know, I think even something like that is uh, is beneficial. So I'm sure that I'll get all kinds of tweets and <laughs> and and and, com and discussions about about that for sure. Um, well, one man who has had plenty of discussion about the sport of boxing, uh, good, bad, and indifferent, is the great Jerry Eisenberg. Jerry has written 13 books. Uh, he has uh, attended every Super Bowl and covered it, save this last one, and uh, he is a just one of the best sports writers that has ever uh, practiced the craft. And his book, Once There Were Giants, which chronicles the heavyweight division and does so in such an excellent fashion, as I mentioned, is being re-released now. And we had a, a nice long conversation with Jerry Eisenberg in which he told, I think, some amazing stories. Here's that chat. Jerry, you have uh, written a book that, uh, in my opinion, kind of, really tells the story completely of the heavyweight giants uh, that roamed the land from 1962 to 1997. And what was it that prompted you to say, I'm going to take this era and I'm going to chronicle it and try and do justice to all these great men? Well, I, I've written a lot of books, as you know, 15 or 16. But it seems that anybody who used a urinal at a public train station, and he happened to be standing next to Ali, wrote a book about Ali. <laughs> and, and, and Ali was my friend for 50 years. Yeah. And uh, these other guys are my friends too, but Ali was my close friend for 50 years. In fact, one night I said to my wife, you know, he's one of my five best friends in the world. And she said, yeah, who are the other four? So, <laughs> so actually, uh, I, I just get tired of reading all the misinformation and crap and and, and then somebody else comes out and steals something from that. Then they got more crap and more misinformation. I wanted to tell it the way it was. And I thought, but gee, his accomplishments don't mean a lot unless you point out who were the other people. Right. Who were the, the other people, the, the challengers, the people who never got to fight, whatever else. And then what, what about the heavyweight crowd? I got to thinking, you know, there's an anecdote. It's very close to my heart. The late Lou Duva and I are standing in the tunnel at Madison Square Garden. It's before a title fight. It was not a heavyweight title, but a title fight. And the guy is standing, the fighter is there, and Lou says, let's go, we gotta go, we gotta go. And the fighter says, I ain't going nowhere, that ain't my music. And, <laughs> I, and, and Duva says to me, have you ever heard such shit? Can you imagine Joe Lewis standing here and saying, I'm not going anywhere until I play my music. Said, That's what happened everywhere with the smoke and the magic and the, posing and everything else. All I know is when I was a young writer, and yeah, when I was a really young writer, the most exciting moment in, there are a couple. One was they're off at the Kentucky Derby. That, you know, everything in your body is focused to it. And um, the other is you finish the Star Spangled Banner at a World Series, and there it is in the same winter playoffs. But there was nothing, nothing at all except being there with the atmosphere, the most electric atmosphere in the world. They start to long walk to the ring. You don't see them. You hear a murmur from the back of the building and a murmur becomes a sound and the sound becomes louder. And then the guy, the second lifts up the ropes, the guys in the ring, it is the most electric moment. And at that moment, you can always make a case for the other guy, the guy in the other corner. It doesn't matter. Before they ring that bell, you say, yeah, but he's got a pretty good left hand. Maybe, you know, that's all happening through my head when I'm sitting at ringside. 
And now, only thing that's sitting with your inside is, when are they going to start this damn thing? Turn off the smoke machine. Jesus <laughs> Christ. It has changed, that's for sure. That's I why I wrote the book. Yeah, well, that and that's a that, and that's a good explanation of it. Uh, you in the book you talk about and uh, it's a great chronology of uh, of the the many men and matchups that uh, that happened in the heavyweight division during that time. And uh, you deal with a lot of different boxing matches, and we're going to talk about some of them and a lot of different men. Um, but because this is the 50th anniversary of, of the, um, from March 8th, 1971, of the first Ali Frazier fight, and that's part of the reason why your book's being re-released, um, we're going to delve into that one a little bit uh, more even. And, of course, it was an extraordinary event. It, it, everything, everything about it, even starting from the two promoters at the beginning, Jerry Parencio and Jack Ken Cook, kind of an unlikely duo, um, Putting this fight together, just putting this fight together was a story in and of itself, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, Ali wanted this fight desperately. And the television people wanted this fight for one minute. They thought Ali was going to the can, that he was going to jail. They'd never get the fight in. And, and then we start to try to make the, Ali's got to get a license in order to have the fight. Every time he goes to a town, they say, that's pretty good for the town. Then incomes of veterans of foreign wars, American. Oh, we can't have the fight here again. The last serious attempt before they finally got a place and a license, they go to Chandler, Arizona. <laughs> There's an Indian reservation not far. Zora Fali, who was the last, what poetic justice, the last guy to fight Ali, come back against him, right? The Indians say, it's not fair. What are you going to do for us if we let you do? Because they're a separate nation. Right. I, I, I don't know the name of the tribe. So... They say, look, we're going to build you a little Tinker Toy Stadium with 25,000 seats. You keep all the admissions. And we're going to give you an outlet for public, for the, uh, for the movie theaters, one outlet. And the, the council talks it over and they say, pretty good, pretty good. Here's the peace pipe. Let's go do it. Ali leaves the reservation and the phone rings in the tribal council. And, and, and some of the guy from a, a ribbon clerk, which is what I call these people. It was a ribbon clerk conspiracy against them. They're all middle-aged people. A guy calls and he says to the chief, you like that HGW money that's coming your way? I would suggest you don't have this fight. Mm. Fight canceled. Mm. Now, Ali goes to um, Atlanta and Lester Maddox, a character all by himself that, thank God, we don't have the... Well, we, we Governor got, of Georgia. We more of them now. But anyway... Lester has got axe handles in his barbecue joint in a barrel. And he's got a sign, feel free if they, whatever, you know, I don't want to use the word, but if the, if, if the I hate to say N-word, it's so trite. Right. But anyway, if they come in here, take the axe handles and chase them out. Well, he decides to run for president. And I'm, I'm the only guy to interview him, other than the people from Georgia. I go over there and I'm listening to him and he's spouting on it. And I say, okay, so my lead the next day is if Lester Maddox has a battle flag, it'll be crossed axe handles rampant on a sea of A1 barbecue sauce. <laughs> well, that didn't go over too well, but Lester remembered me because I'd written it. Now he goes to Atlanta. Lester says, no fight after he's pressured. A guy by the name of Johnson, uh, Afro-American guy who is a state senator in Atlanta is smarter than everybody in the state because he realized there's no boxing commission in Georgia. None. 
he creates the Atlanta City Boxing Commission. Come on down. The water's fine. Allie's got to fight. Quarry, sure, I'll fight him, all right? Now, the day before the fight, I'm working for a... Yeah, this is fight with Jerry Corey Lee before yeah, the, the Allie Yeah, this fight, is right. the comeback fight. All right, now I'm sitting with him in a broken-down gym. I don't know why we, they put us there. We're sitting on a bench that has three legs. And Allie reaches over. I can hear the shower leaking behind us. And Allie reaches over, and he pats my head, and he says, you know, when I first met you, you had hair. <laughs> and I turn around and tap him in his stomach and say, yeah, when I first met you, you weren't carrying around that spare tire. So he really wasn't in shape for this fight. All right, you're going to have the fight. I go to Lester because I'm doing, I'm working for, I've got a show on public television and I'm going to interview Lester about why he's turned against the fight. And I said, he said, well, I don't know about you. I, I said, listen, I'll give you my word of honor on, on Jefferson Davis's grave if I have to. I'll give you a minute. If you don't curse, you got the minute. Whatever you said, it's on the show. So now I remember when Lester leans back in a chair, there's a, there's a little statuette of praying hands on one side and a Confederate cannon on the other, and a little tiny flag. And he says, I think it is a sad and tragic day when a man who will not fight for his own country will get in the ring and fight for dollars. I therefore have proclaimed tomorrow night a night of mourning in the state of Georgia. Jesse Outlaw, a local sports editor, said to me, Lester wants to mourn, let him go mourn. I'm going to the fight. <laughs> well, th they go to the fight, and I'll tell you, it was, it was like turning back. Ali did this a couple of times. In brief episodes, he could create the old Ali. And it couldn't last because he was not the old Ali anymore. He comes out, bang, left hand, left hand, left hand, right course. I mean, he's got Quarry in trouble. Quarry fights back. Quarry, everybody forgets Quarry's a pretty good damn fighter. Well, the bell rings to end the round. Allie has won that round by a mile. And I look at him walking back to his corner, and I said, that's not him. That's a beached whale. He's puffing so hard with his mouth open. I'm hoping he can make it to the corner. He sits down. Two rounds later, Quarry gets the cut. They stop the fight. He's over the first obstacle right? The, then he beats Bonavina. And to me, my, I, don't, I don't pay much attention to judges scorecards, not because they're corrupt, although some are, but not because they're corrupt, because many times they don't know what they're seeing. In fact, you hit a guy with a body punch, they don't even score it because they can't see the punch. So anyway, he fights Bonavina, and in my scorecard, he's one point, he's, but he's got to win it. He's got to win the last two rounds. He hits Bonavina with the best left hook he ever threw in his entire life. I thought the gloves were loaded. I mean, Ali doesn't knock people out in the 14th Man. round unless they faint by attrition, right? Bang. So now he's got, to, he's got to fight. Well, meanwhile, leading up to that, Ali is campaigning to get this fight. Before he even fought Quarry, he's on a street outside of the old Clover Lake gym, of course, from the train right. station in Philadelphia, North Philadelphia. And he's pounding on the window. Come out here. Come out here. I'm going to fight you right now. I'll fight you in the street. And Joe is Joe. I love Joe. He says, you want to fight? We'll fight. He starts with the door. Yank Durham grabs him by the neck. And he says, you ain't going anywhere. You think you're going to have this fight for no money? Not my, no, you're not getting by me. So, of course, there was no street fight. Mm. Ali loved those fake street fights anyway. 
<laughs> so now, like, they finally make the fight. Now, you got to remember, they make the fight, they're scared to death because they think Ali's going to jail and he, we got to get this fight in. Well, what he had to do to get that fight, he'd been away through close to three years. That's incredible. Yeah. So, and all week long, you're getting the same thing back and forth. But meanwhile, um, he turned Ali into an Uncle Tom or a white fighter, depending upon which you mean turn, turn Frazier into that. Yeah, for, I'm sorry, he turned yeah, yeah. he turned Frazier into it. Right. And Frazier delivered, you know. And Frazier's yeah. talking to me that week and he says, Oh, the poor guy, he didn't learn to fight until somebody stole his bike when he was 15, you know, bike. When I was 15, I didn't have a bike. I'm in the field plowing, getting ready to get married. Seeing a little, uh, seeing a guy get whipped in front of me uh, by the by the straw boss, and I got to go up north because it happens. My mama says, "Get out of town," because you saw it. He goes to his, and he's he's recounting all this this time. He goes to his aunt's apartment in New York. He said, "I'm working in a slaughterhouse." He's taking boxing lessons in the PAO gym, and I'm hitting cows between the eye with a baseball bat. He said, I don't want to hear about, about his deprivation. I just want to get him in a ring. And, 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 Ali, and Ali was Ali. He always played the role no matter what. Whatever they wanted him to be, he would be the opposite so they get them inflamed. Well, about four or five months before this fight, everybody says, was America divided? Was America divided? Four or five months before this fight, hippies and hard hats were in a fight with pipes and fists in Times Square, New York. You bet this country was. I hadn't seen anything like this since I was a little kid, and my father drove me by the two German-American Bund camps to see the kids in uniform marching and say, we got to watch out for these people. That's how bad the country was divided. And I'm told, and then my, I, I'm looking forward to the fight very much because I want to see the fight. That I mean, and to me, if they fight maybe a year, two years, if they fight two years earlier, Ali probably wins because he's getting to the top of his game at that point. Everything else was descending after that. And, and the thing about these two guys, they always made each other better. Right. Whereas in the case of the second fight, they made each other worse. Yeah. If you sat through the second fight, you'd say, what are these guys' names? I'm getting out of here. It's a <laughs> terrible fight. It wasn't but a great the first, fight. The first fight was really the audience, the emotion, the noise. My, my, my father-in-law dies the night before the fight. I can't go to the fight. I get a tape. I see it four or five times. Now, I know it happened in a fight. Joe Frazier goes to the hospital. Ali then starts his campaign on every talk show. Well, look, Joe Fraser, he's in the hospital. Look at me, look at the pretty face. Look at this, look at that. So, okay, when that happens, um, Fraser's doing a burn. So I think, ah, there's only one place to get the real story. I missed the fight, but the re this is the real story. I'm going to Philly to the gym and I'm going to sit Fraser down and say, what happened during the fight and what's happening now? I get off the train, North Philly. I walk across the street, walk in the gym. There is, so help me, a floor to ceiling photograph of Ali on his ass and Frazier looking over his shoulder going to the corner. And I said, you didn't waste any time, did you? <laughs> he said, I can't afford to, you know what's happening? He said, listen, we're gonna go get some sandwiches and we're gonna come back to the gym and we're, I'm gonna tell you about the fight. 
this is a great story you're leading up to. It's it's very good when you're you're confront. He's confronted by someone. It's fascinating. Go ahead. All right. So now, he's, we go to this deli, neighborhood deli. One gopher goes in to order the sandwiches, and uh, the other gopher is standing there next to next to the Rolls Royce is parked. Three little Afro American kids, eight years old maybe, come running down the hill. Joe Fraser, Joe Fraser. He goes wow, He loves it. Go to his car, bring in the autographed pictures. I want these kids to have my pictures. Uh, now he hands the pictures out. What are you kids doing on the show? Why aren't you in school? It's lunchtime, Joe. Oh, yeah, I never thought about that. Okay. Now one kid says to him, you know, my daddy says Muhammad Ali was drugged. Joe, who's a very dark man, I swear, began to turn white. He was so angry. He gets down at face level with the kid. I thought he was going to shove him or something. And he said, listen, you go back home and you tell your daddy he's absolutely right. He was good. I drug him with a left hook. <laughs> the kids went away in terror, right? Joe says to me, and I'll never forget his words. And this is the real story of Joe Frazier. No matter what happened the rest of his life, this is the story. He says to me, what are I supposed to do? You told me you saw the tape. You told me you saw it more than once. What the hell am I supposed to do to make people believe what happened? All right, so we get back to the gym. Very emotional moment. Now we're sitting down, and I said, well, I said, you know, Allie always argues with me. 50 years he argued with me. I never talk in the rain. And I'm saying, you're so into the fight, and your mind is... He doesn't so even know he's talking, huh? Yeah, he doesn't know it. No, he's into it. He, you know, he was like Lombardi saying, I never said that right after the game when he was still in the game, right? So he says, no, no, no. He would tell me, I don't do it. Joe says, bullshit. He said, let me tell you something. He knows I'm, I'm beating him. He knows I'm beating him. Everybody in the corner said, you're getting licked, son. You've got to knock him out. He comes out for the 15th. And what I saw in the tape was the old alley, which he could do somehow for 30 right. seconds, and the left hand pop, 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 the right course is coming, and he's yelling the following, according to Joe Frazier, and I take his word for it, fool, fool, fall down, fool, you can't stand up, God has ordained, I will be the heavyweight champion, you can't fight against God, and when he says that, according to Frazier, Joe slips a punch, throws the left hook, and says, well, God's going to get his ass whipped tonight, Bang, Ali's on the floor. That was any hope that he could win the fight ended with that knockdown. I mean, you know, 10-8 round. So, um, but, and he says, so that's exactly what happened. And he, he said, you know, and he, it's just bad. Well, before the second fight, they all said, I'm going to, I'm going to, Ali, I'm going to get my title back. Blah, blah, blah. But he didn't have the title because he had the misfortune to step in the ring against George right. Foreman. And what happened now is no mystery. Now that Foreman explained it to me, it's no mystery. I have always preached this, and I'm sure you have too. Three words, styles make fights. Doesn't matter who they are. Exactly. And Foreman said, you're always running your mouth. I still speak to him every other week. You're still running, you're always running your mouth. He said, well, I'm going to tell you why you're right. He said, I could fight Ali a hundred times. He's going to beat me a hundred times. I can fight Frazier a hundred times. He's going to get knocked out a hundred times. 
and then they go fight each other and it's life and death because styles make fights. Right. All right, so then they have the worst fight ever held in, in, in uh, Madison Square Garden. Like I said, if you were, you know, if you didn't know their names, you'd walk down. It was a terrible fight, plus terrible officiating. Uh, Frazier almost got knocked out in the first round, the bell rang too early. I mean, it was just atrocious. And then the pursuit race is on. He's got to find a way to get his revenge against Frazier. And Frazier's more than willing to oblige him, but it doesn't mean anything. He's got to get the title. He's got to get the title. So he goes to Africa. And I'm in Africa and I go through the whole thing. I mean, it, it's absolutely priceless. And but I will tell you a thing about leading up to the African fight. Yeah, this is the fight between Ali and George Foreman in Zaire uh, that was set yeah. amidst an amazing. Uh, oh, yeah. It's um, for the fight you know, because of the satellite. Setting. Because of the satellite, it's at four in the morning there. Um, we are about five miles from the spot where. The famous Dr. Livingston, I presume, was uttered by the American Senate, the newspaper guy sent out to fight exactly, him in yeah. Africa. Okay. I mean, for me as a writer, as a writer, I don't care. I, I almost don't care about the fight because there's so much in Africa to write about. Ali Boumaye, Ali kill him. Ali, I go to the gym four or five days before now, Ali is living in Foreman's living downtown at the Omni Hotel. Downtown is a misnomer, but that's what they call their one stop like. So Kinshasa, but but Frazier, but Ali is out at a military compound called Anselli, and the gym is there. Go to the gym, and Ali does his workout, and he's walking around the ring in a white bathrobe, holding the microphone, and he's saying, "George Foreman, George Foreman," he said, "Do you do you see the dog that George Foreman brought with him?" You know, I'm told that the people who persecuted you, the Belgians, he Ali called them Belgians. He couldn't say Belgians. The Belgians, they set dogs on you. Do you know the dog he brought here was a Belgian shepherd? Right. He is a white man. Hey, Ron, Ali, boom, Okay, so now. Yeah, that was, that was an interesting, that, what you just told the story there, is an interesting part about the fact that Ali, in that fight, as well as the third fight with Frazier in Manila, Ali managed to find a way to make these fights almost home games for him, didn't he? Because he had a facile mind that could figure out a way to get the people um, on his side. Anywhere he went was a home game. Anywhere he went. Uh, uh, Jimmy Young, a very skillful fighter, resorts to sticking his head out of the ropes, which the official, I don't know who he was, that's an automatic knockdown, never counted. So never got, never got, was in danger there. Um, and he, he always turned the, in fact, now that when they get to Manila, well, let's get, I got to tell you one quick story. Everybody said he couldn't win, right? Against Foreman. Against Foreman. Yeah. So I go to Deer Lake with the late Jerry Lisker, rest in peace. He was the sports editor then of the New York Post. And we're going to go see Ali. Ali's going to leave, Ali's going to leave, like in a week, and we're going to leave in three weeks for Africa for the fight. So I, I swear, I, he had eyes in the back of his head. He must have. He's hitting a heavy bag, right? We're in the doorway. He, I mean, we're facing his back. He knows we're there. 
And he's going, I'll knock that sucker out. Bang. I'm gonna, he's going to go down. Bang, bang, bang. And I'm looking, I said, Jerry, you realize how he had traumatic arthritis in his both hands. Most people didn't know it. He hadn't knocked anybody out for a long time, if you go back and look at the record. Gene Kilroy, who was really his aide-de-camp there, uh, now lives in Vegas. Kilroy says, we got to do something about your hands. Pacheco is sticking needles in his hand. Kilroy takes him, I think it's a Hainem, I don't know the name of the hospital in Philadelphia, to a specialist. And the guy says, all right, Muhammad, listen, no more needles. Anybody comes to you with a needle, you're a fighter, knock them down. No more needles. Here's what's going to be. You're going to soak your hands in hot paraffin as many times a day as you can stand it. We ain't going to cure your hands, but I guarantee you, you'll be able to throw those hands with authority when you go to the fight. And the reason I believe it is when my hands went bad, I did the same thing because I knew that because, and my hands are pretty good today. Mm. I wouldn't want to have to hit you with it, but they're pretty good. Okay. <laughs> I don't want you to hit me because you have a good right hand. So, so uh, um, okay. So now, uh, bang, 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 and all of a sudden, oh, hi, guys, fellas. You would say, hi, fellas. I look at, and we know, because I've told Jerry Lisker about their hands. He hasn't hit a heavy bag in a year and a half or two. Mm. And now he's, and I'm, he's kicking the crap out of him. And so he, we leave the gym finally. Jerry says, well, we're going to pick in this thing. You know, I said, I don't have to wait till I get there. I'm going to pick Muhammad by a knockout. And he said, how can you say that? I said, how can I say that? I remember a long, long time ago when I early went in his career, he said to me, if I say a mosquito can pull a plow, don't argue, hitch him up. And I'm going to hitch my prediction to what we just saw. And that's the way it ended, the exact same way. I got to tell you a little sidebar to that fight also, that Lisker was working for the London Sun then too. And he's going to dictate the fight live. And the night before, and everything was wrong in Zaire. Everything happened wrong in Zaire. We get to the, the morning of the fight. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going down to the arena. Uh, it was an old crumbling soccer field. And he said, well, why would you go now? I said, because I'd like to know if there's a little thing there like a table that I may be able to type on. I'd like to know. They have screwed up everything. We tried to send a column the other day. Oh, all, all the telexes are down. We have to send for a technician. To, and it, you know what the technician did when he got out there? He plugged them all in. <laughs> so, I mean, so this is how primitive it was, all right? So, so now I'm listening to Lisker sitting next to me. I said, Jerry, you're, what are you going to do with that phone? He said, well, I'm going to phone it to London because it's too short. Jerry, that's, that, trust me, I don't know where it's going, but whatever you say into that phone is not going out of Kinshasa's eye here. He says, oh, oh, no, I got, watch. He dials the number. Somebody answers in Lingala, hello. And he says, see, 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 puts it down. I said, ain't going to work. I said, tell you what, Jerry. I'll give you a hundred uh, odds, a hundred dollars to ten dollars. If that phone works properly, I will buy you dinner at 21 in New York. And if it doesn't, all you got to do is take me to McDonald's. We make the bet. He's coming down here. They're coming down the aisle. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, he's wearing African garb. I don't know why. He's, and blah, 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 blah. Boom. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Fighters are in the ring. Ali is drawing at him. He must be trying to get him. He said, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. 
Finally comes the fateful round. He happens to look up and he says, he's going down. He's going down. Can you hear me? And the Belgian technician across the ring says, yes, I can hear you. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry was on the San Jose boxing team. And that fight was better than Ali for <laughs> So anyway. Well, a Belgian, a Belgian technician heard his entire call of the fight. So that was good. I said, I said good job, Jerry. You got that call about 20 feet from where we're sitting to where he's sitting. Anyway, all right, we go. Now he, he's going to fight. Uh, he goes to Bug. He fights Bugner, and it's no fight. It's horrible. And um, it's three days before the fight, and he said, "This is my last fight, fellas." That was at right, ten in the morning, one o'clock. He says, "Well, I've decided I'd like to have one more go around and fight someone else." Blah blah blah. Two o'clock in the afternoon, Aunt Dave Anderson from the Times and I are walking down the hall, and we hear this voice: "Can't fight. He can't fight." He's an old man. He's an old man. Joe Frazier, I'm coming for your ass. We walk into the room. We say, we thought you retired. He said, oh, I was just trying to sell tickets. You know, yeah. Um, he said, but look at him. Look at, the, look at him. I'll knock him out. I'll knock him out as soon as he steps in the ring. Got to go back for the third time. And then we got to kill stories and write again with a 13-hour time difference. Okay. He beats him no problem. He beats Budner no problem. Now we're in Manila. Okay. Just before they announced the press conference to announce the fight in New York, they're walking down um, alley and a thousand people are walking down 8th Avenue and they come to one of these cheap stores, right? And they go in the store and he sees a gorilla doll and he picks it up and that's how it starts. Boom, 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 boom. He's, he's punching the, the doll. It's gonna be a thriller in Manila. Is a killer when I read the gorilla, you know. Okay, so it, it was, and Joe really takes it to heart. Let me let me ask you. Let me stop you there and ask you because I want to. You've 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 talked about this and alluded to it, and it's a topic that is is fascinating to me and always has been. And you knew both men very well. Uh, and and I spent a lot of time with Joe Frazier in the last ten or twelve years of his life, doing events with him, etc. The the dynamic between these two men was so so interesting. Did Ali ever truly understand? Did he care that while he was promoting fights, uh, the man who he once called a close friend was so hurt by what he did? Never. I'll tell you. He didn't know it, or he didn't care. No, but I'm going to go ahead of the fight to answer your question. Okay, I'll, we'll go ahead. In, we'll be in a minute, but it's over. Okay. Okay. He, Joe, uh, 25 years later, I write a perspective on that fight called Then and Now. The then I tell how they chose the referee, uh, Sonny Padilla, uh, how both sides wouldn't, didn't want him. He was, uh, he's too small to break these big heavy men and blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, they have a rules meeting and the head of the commission sits down. He's wearing a uniform, of course, pulls out a 45 and puts it on the table. <laughs> and he says, I'm thinking there will be a Filipino referee. No one's arguing. They don't mind arguing with him, but they ain't going to argue with the 45, right? In comes the referee. He's the tallest Filipino I have ever seen outside, <laughs> of, outside of Roman Gabriel. Right. And I think this guy's going to have no trouble. And he that night, 
he was the first guy to stop Ali, put his hand behind his neck right. and said, you cannot pull his head down to hit him. And when I say break, he says to Frazier, during, during the fight, you will break. And that fight was a very well-conducted fight. It absolutely was the greatest fight I ever saw in terms of he's yeah. a coward. Okay, so now they're getting ready to, and I know it's gonna be, it's Ali, it's gonna be a circus no matter what. We pull up to the hotel in Manila, our hotel. I get out and there is a Filipino in tails and a top hat and a Bible in one arm. And he's saying, I spoke to God last night. And God tells me, Joe Frazier cannot lose, will not lose this fight. And I said to Lister, who is with me, go up there and ask him if he'll give me eight to five. I'm taking the alley. So, all right, now we get ready for, and all kinds of things happen during the fight. And, and, and he's mad. Well, fast forward ahead for one second, because I don't want to forget to tell you this. 25 years later, I do the perspective. So I said to Pizzio, what did you think when you got the referee's job? What do you think now that you've refereed it? 25 years, Joe and, and, and for everybody, promoters, I spoke to everybody. So I'm on the phone with Ali to do this perspective. And I, I said, you know, I got to tell you something. Maybe you don't know this. Marvis Frazier, who is then maybe 13 years old, comes home crying from school. Daddy, they tell me my father is a gorilla. My father's a gorilla. Joe never, never forgot that. Never. And it burned in his mind. His kids were crying over Ali, what Ali said. And so when I did the, the perspective, he said to me, well, Jerry, he said, you know, I was just trying to sell tickets for the fight. I wasn't personal. I said, it was a theater fight Monday night. Nobody needed to sell any tickets for that fight. You couldn't get near a theater. It was just a big thing. Nobody. So I will tell you what my father told me, Muhammad, never bullshit a bullshitter. I know you, I know you didn't have to do it. He said, well, I never thought about it. But I'll tell you what, are you going to speak to Joe? I said, as soon, this phone will still be warm. As soon as I hang up, I got Joe on the phone. He said, well, I want you to tell him I didn't want to hurt his kids. I really didn't want to hurt his kids. Tell him I'm really sorry for that. All right. Now I call Frazier. He said, so you spoke to him? It was him. I mean, he never seen. I was, I'm surprised. He might have said Clay, you know. He, and I said, yeah, I just got off the phone with him. Repeat that. I said, well, he said to me, tell him I'm really sorry if I hurt his kids. That was not my intent. I'm just trying to sell tickets. He said, that's what he said. I said, yeah. He said, you go back, call him back and tell him to take his apology and shove it straight up his ass. And that's why I know all of the ceremonial handshakes that followed through the years didn't mean anything to Joe whatsoever. And I remember at the boxing, and he wouldn't let it go. I remember, that I got some bullshit awards to boxing by his dinner, and Joe was sitting at the table next to me. And he leans over as it's starting, and he says to me, you see Ali, you hear Ali speak? You see, you see me, you hear me speak? So really, who got the best of this thing? And he took satisfaction, he's the only, and he's not a mean man, he's a very gentle man. And yet he took satisfaction in Ali's pain because he, the thing cut him so deeply. Anyway, we'll go back to the fight, right? Now all of the lies have been told, everything else, they're in the ring for the introduction. 
Ali's waving, the Indian in the corner, Muhammad Ali, and the boos are thunderous. And Ali puts his glove in front of his eye and goes, oh, like he's crying, right? And I realized, largest Christian country in Asia in a civil war with Muslims in the south part of the country. You bet that they were going to cheer Joe Frazier and they were going to boo Muhammad Ali. Well, before this fight, I, have, I was under the impression that if he fell down and had to tie his shoe with his right hand, Joe couldn't do it. I never saw him throw a right hand that meant that damn thing, right? Eddie Futch, who now is, is a trainer and manager, says to, he hires George Benton, great middleweight fighter, okay? He's the assistant. He says, Georgie, we got three months before this fight. You're going to teach Joe to throw a right hand. I don't care if it, does, if it misses. I don't care if it doesn't hurt him. I want Ali to see that right hand because I know he's thinking I'm fighting a left-handed fighter. So the fight starts. In the beginning of the fight, Joe almost gets knocked out. Several rounds into it, Frazier hits him with the right hand. Ali, who never speaks in a ring, and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're an old man. You can't throw a right hand. You're an old man. And he says, ask George Benton. Bing. And he hits him again with the right hand. Alec had to think that over. So now the tide is, it's like a, it's like a Wall Street graph. No knockdowns in the entire fight and, and, and you're on the edge of your seat. Early rounds to Ali. Joe hits him with the right hand. Ali pauses for that. Joe is now taking control. And it, and it goes up and down, up and down until a strange thing happens. Not so strange when you think of it. Because I don't think that that was ever settled. Who was the better fighter? Each guy always made himself, the other guy, better. Maybe I had the other guy had to be better to stay in a ring with each guy. Right. And, and, and better than they really truly were, probably. Anyway, uh, it's now the somewhere between the 12th and the 14th. I don't, I, I don't remember, but it was right around there. Around the 11th or 12th, Fletch looks at the eyes and he says, son, you're going to have to straighten up. You know, he fought totally out of a crouch his whole life. You're going to have to straighten up. You don't see what you're trying to hit. And when he straightened up, that was curtains because that left jab kept coming bang, 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 and the eye kept closing more and more and more. And now we're into the 12th to 13th round. Frazier is standing in front of Ali. His arms are dangling at his sides. His legs are quivering like wet spaghetti. All Ali has to do is walk a foot and a half and tap him. Fight's going to be over. Ali could not walk that foot and a half. Mm. That's what happened. These guys gave up their souls in that fight. And at the end of it, of course, when they cut the gloves off over Joe's and you know something, my scorecard, like I say, it's the only one I count. Ali's ahead by a point. If Ali, if Frazier, who has the potential, knocks him down in the 15th round, he's going to win the fight with a 10 Yeah, it was round. a very, very, very close fight. Yep. And so... Uh, I'm thinking if they hadn't cut the gloves off, maybe. But but when Fletch said, son, your eyes are too valuable, we're not going to do this. I don't care what you think. Ali, meanwhile, is gasping for air on the other stool. Dundee, who's paying no attention to Ali, is looking at Frazier, 
The gloves have been cut off. It's over, it's over, it's over. He said, Allie gets up, goes about eight feet, collapses in the middle of the ring. Gene Kirill, a good friend of his and a great friend of mine, will argue about that. He Because people were jumping in the ring, that's why he went there. But he had no breath left. I mean, it was really, and it was, so I remember now, up the aisle comes Ali being supported. I'm sitting next to uh, Mr. and Dave Anderson. And he leans over into the press section and he says, fellas, that's the closest thing you'll ever see to death. And I say to, to, uh, to uh, Anderson, I don't want to get any closer. That's enough of death I've seen tonight. That's for sure. I was saying, send them both home. Well, well, now I got to write this after I've seen the greatest fight I've ever seen. And I got about half an hour to write a column, not, not, a, not who had the fight, but a column about what. So I sit down, I'll never forget. I will never forget my lead. I was very proud of it. Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali did not fight for the WBC championship last night. They did not fight for the championship of the whole planet Earth last night. They fought in the middle of the ring without clinches on a melting ice floe. And they could have fought in a phone booth to see who was the champion. Joe Frazier, was, am I the champion of Ali or is Ali the champion of me? And as far as I'm concerned, after the three fights, it was never settled. Very well put. And, and you know, that saga for boxing fans remains one of the most important uh, in their lives. Um, there's no question about that, even as fans. You, in the book, you write, um, you write about this whole era and you, you, you write about all the, a lot of the great champions, uh, you know, uh, Joe Frazier and Ali, uh, Larry Holmes. Uh, you, you you talk about his fight with Kenny Norton and Jerry Cooney and and Michael Spinks. You talk about Tyson Holyfield, and in the book you talk about the different um, uh, flavor of society as things were happening. And one of the, the 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 poignant parts of the book I thought was your description of Larry Holmes and uh, Jerry Cooney as they both navigated through what was a kind of a shameless and totally inappropriate promotion of that fight by Cooney's two managers and Don King, in which they very much used racial um, tensions to kind of build the fight in terms of making money. And to this day, both men are aware of that. And now Jerry Cooney and Larry Holmes, you know, are, good, are, are friends. They, they like each other. I've been around them many times. Uh, but at the time, it was tough for those two men to deal with, wasn't it? I'm sitting in Larry Holmes' living room in eastern Pennsylvania, fireplace, winter. This is well before the fight, but signed, though. And now Rappaport, who is the biggest mouth on the other corner, is yakking about whites and this and that and the blacks and of course king is king and i said so what about this how you know you got to have a promoter you got to have an opponent he's got to have a manager you can't avoid any of this thing but how do you really feel deep down and i'll never forget it he points to the mantelpiece of his fireplace he says you see all those white kids up there they're my nieces and nephews how can I be a racist? Okay, that's number one. Cooney said, I'm not in camp. Cooney was, 
Cooney was really the most, one of the most honest writers I ever had to interview, most honest athletes I ever had to interview in my life. He's always told it like it was. He could have been wrong, like he thinks he should have won a fight that he beat the count, but, uh, but that nevertheless, um, Victor Valley, who may not have been the world's greatest trainer, but he was the world's greatest protector and he didn't want Jerry to take any more. Um, I remember him telling me about how you know, a lot of people don't know this. He did not want to be a fighter. Cooney right. did not want to be a fighter. His father used to make him run at 5.30 in the morning through the streets of that town in Long Island where he was from. And then he'd have to go to school. And then he'd have to take two trains to get to the gym in, in Manhattan. He'd have to train. He'd have to come back. And all of this stuff. And the father was just, sometimes he said, I was so exhausted. I mean, as a kid, I wouldn't even an amateur yet, really. And I'm sitting on the side of the curb and my father come up and he wrapped me in the mouth, slapped me backhanded, get up, run, run, run. And, and it was, that was tough for him. And he survived a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things that part of his youth was taken from him. I don't know whether he would tell you that, but uh, that's the way I interpret what he told me. I never spoke to the father. I spoke to the brother though, and a girlfriend, and yeah, it seemed to all fit together in that pattern. And I remember he could not fathom the idea. In fact, he said to me about Rappaport, you know, he said, I try not to listen to those guys. I don't want to hear them. They, they, I, can, I can fight. I can be. Well, what he didn't know is if he had one punch left after that fight that night, he should have two punches he needed. <laughs> really one was Rappaport. Should have thrown it at Rappaport. Because they prevented Cooney, and I believe this in my heart. I've seen a lot of fighters and a lot of fights. They prevented him from becoming what Jerry Cooney have, could become. They gave him washed up fighters to fight. Uh, guys who had big knockout records, but they couldn't stand up anymore. And so he couldn't learn. You know what, the, what, 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 what Joe Frazier told me once was the most valuable fight he ever had in his life? That was... Scrap Iron Johnson. Scrap Iron Johnson, Scrap Iron Jones. What was his name? I think it was Johnson. Scrap Iron, it was his yeah, name. Yeah, Scrap Iron Johnson. Yeah, that was, why did they make the fight? He was a well-traveled fighter. He knew every trick in the book and he couldn't punch his way out of a paper bag. Right. So they knew Joe could win the fight, but Joe was gonna have a lot of problems. And Yancey Durham said, that's what I wanna see. Yeah. So, uh, Joe told me later it was the most valuable fight. He, he went to school in it. And he took yeah, They never did that with Jerry Cooney. They never really gave him that. That's what of... I'm trying. They never gave him anybody who could fight, really. I mean, it was just the way it was. And, and um, one thing that may have misled Cooney in a little bit in the fact that he could have won the fight, Larry Holmes had an obsession about his boxing shoes. Wear the shoes. I can't train without the shoes. Got to have the shoes. Then he goes out and buys a brand new pair of shoes to look good and he gets blisters on the bottom of his feet and if you watch the tape that's when it suddenly becomes a jabbing match for him until he got him in trouble and then he puts him away yeah uh you in the um you tell a story and this this might be the best way to to me it kind of sums up this whole uh era uh you tell the story in the book about after the tyson holyfield um ear biting incident 
you, you, you wrote your story, you did everything that you're supposed to do. And of course, while you were doing all that craziness was ensuing in the casino and there were gunshots and it was a madhouse scene. And the casino was kind of completely drained of people, uh, at that point. They threw everybody out. Yes. You came, you came out to see this scene of, uh, a casino that never is like this. And I always thought that when you wrote that in the book, that it was kind of a metaphor for this whole era ending. Uh, it was kind of the end of that part of the heavyweight story. Musicians would say it put the coda on the yeah. golden era. And I tell you, I never forget the mob pushing in there. I finally get out and I get into the casino and I don't hear anything. Oh, there's no conversation. The dice tables are empty. There's no, you know. But for the only time in my life, every single slot machine in the MGM Grand is silent. And it's, I mean, it's, I can't believe it. And I look up and this guy's coming toward me. And he's got his name here. You know, he's, he said, sir, you'll have to leave the casino. I said, well, I'm going to, I live, I'm living here. I'm going to go to my room. Oh no, I, I'm living here. Guy says, well, then go to your room. I said, what are you, my father? Go to my room. I said, let me see the name on that thing. Your boss is going to love when I write about the MGM tomorrow with your name in it. The guy said, uh, forget I saw you and walks away. But that was the only sound in the career in the casino was his voice. I mean, it was really, like I say, it was requiem for a golden era. That's what it was. And it was a perfect, it, it's not an exclamation point. You know, it's, that's too loud. It's like at the end of a concerto, Dakota, where, where the piano is the last thing you hear of the violin and it drifts off and the whole era drifted off. Remember, in the beginning of the book, there's a chapter called Tough Guys Have Rules. Right. And some guy, I don't remember who it was now, that wrote the book four years ago, but it, it might have been a, a Genovese. It, I know it's Friday night, because on Saturday night, the mafia osos are with their wives. On Friday night, they're with the Gamaris. And he's got this girl, he takes her on a date. I think they're at the Copa. And he sees a table with Willie Pep and two other champions sitting at the table. Come on, guys, you're going to sit at my table. Everything's on me, on me, on me. They come over, of course, they come over. And uh, listen, my girl, isn't she pretty? Isn't she pretty? You're all going to dance with her. And Willie Pep says, I ain't going to dance with her. Is now that's like a death warrant. I mean, you're, you're, you're insulting his taste in women. You weigh 118 pounds. What chance are you going to have? They're not going to offer to box you, you know. Uh, and he says, my girl's not pretty enough for you. And Willie says, look, we got rules. Tough guys don't dance. And it was the only logical explanation because every mafioso wanted to be thought of as a tough guy. And if Willie said it, you don't have to dance. That's great. Uh, your uh, the book um, "Once There Were Giants" is a terrific read. Um, I read it again before uh, second reading before this interview, and it was uh, just as vibrant as the first time I looked at it. And uh, for anybody that is either too young to remember all that period uh, or wants to relive uh, that part of boxing history. This is a, a must read and uh, now re-released uh, in paperback. And uh, Jerry, uh, I very much appreciate you taking time to visit with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, the, 
all those memories. Uh, uh, I had a sort of a tempestuous youth, which I'm not particularly proud of, but all those memories erased that because they're the good memories. That's for sure. Well, you, you've gotten to cover uh, uh, not that, not just that, of course, for people that know your history as a, a great writer. You've covered every major sporting event that matters in uh, all these decades, and uh, you've been the voice of uh, for us um, and telling us all about those events. So I appreciate it, and uh, uh, I know the book will gain many new readers now in this re-release. Take care. Well, thank you very much. I'll always a pleasure. All right. So that was uh, Jerry Eisenberg telling, I think, some extraordinary stories. I, you know, I, the book itself is a great read, so I strongly urge you to get a copy of it. Once There Were Giants uh, is the title of it. And, I, you know, I just think that that era was, was so wonderful um, in the heavyweight division. He's done a great job of chronicling it, so... Um, I, I urge you to take a look at it. And, uh, and we, I believe, Trip Mitchell, have a few more questions. We do. Mike Hills asks, who was your biggest surefire tip for the top that did not make it? Also, do you think that Wilder will eventually focus on his career again and win another world title? Yeah, I'll tell you, there's actually, I'll mention a couple of fighters that I thought were, and they had good careers, but didn't quite become the superstars that would have been anticipated. Bernard Taylor was a fighter from Knoxville, Tennessee, who I announced many of his fights, just as fast and as skilled and as good as you can imagine. He had a terrific career, did not win a world title, uh, but he didn't, he didn't get to the place that everyone thought he would get to. He just looked like he was the whole package and he didn't quite get there. The other one, a man who was named the, at the 1976 Olympics with all those great fighters, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard, the Spinks brothers, uh, and other great fighters on the U.S. team, who was named the fighter of the tournament? Howard Davis, who won the lightweight title and would go on to have a fantastic, uh, good uh, professional career, but not really reach the heights that everyone expected him to reach. Uh, he suffered losses and made some major fights and just never got to the superstardom that people thought he would. So those are two fighters that I, I just thought would achieve a little bit, uh, a little bit more. On a, on a, also on that, uh, a fighter of lesser fame, Clint Jackson, who did a, a, we had on uh, our Showtime or ESPN show a lot, uh, was a phenomenal uh, um, amateur he didn't quite get to the promised land as a professional either. Now, as to the Deontay Wilder part of uh, that question, you know, Deontay Wilder is 35 years of age, uh, coming off that loss to, to Fury. Clearly, he believes, and at age 35, heavyweights are, you know, that, that's not considered a, an old age for heavyweights. You think of them having a couple more good years left in them at that, at that age often, though certainly he's coming off a tough loss. I'm sure we'll see Deontay Wilder back in the ring. I hope within the next five, six, seven months. That would be, you know, ideal for his fans. Uh, he has has he damaged his brand a little bit with the, some of the comments and things he's made after the Fury fight. I suspect yes, but that really has nothing to do with ha what what happens in the ring, does it? Uh, and there are many, many Deontay Wilder fans out there, and they want to see him. He is an exciting figure in the heavyweight division. 
and uh, and it would be good for the sport if he comes back and is a factor in the heavyweight division. And I fully uh, expect that to happen. Okay, and then we have a very serious question on the culinary side of things. Rich Morata asks, has Barry Tompkins ever eaten at a restaurant where the entree costs less than $30? Yeah, so many people will know that Rich Morata is a fine boxing commentator. He's been a terrific uh, boxing commentator for decades, a uh, contemporary of mine, and he also is the man that founded the Nevada um, Boxing Hall of Fame, and that is uh, a very big achievement for him and a, and a wonderful one. And many people in the boxing community owe Rich a big thank you for that. Uh, and Rich, for many years, worked with Barry Tompkins, as, of course, I did at ESPN. Uh, Barry works with me now at Showtime, but I don't get to call fights with him very often. Uh, but he does the Showbox series, of course. And Barry is known uh, in boxing circles for his culinary uh, acumen. And what that means is that when you eat with Barry, bring your credit card and make sure you have got a limit on it that's hefty uh, because he tends to pick restaurants that are expensive. Uh, and I, when, when uh, Rich Murata sent that question on Twitter, I, said, I sent back, I said, yeah. I said, uh, somebody asked me about this, and I said, listen, Barry Tompkins could eat at a diner where the smallest, uh, uh, the lowest cost entree is $30. Uh, <laughs> he, he's very, uh, he is very specific when it comes to dining. And here's, here's the way that works. So, like when we did our ESPN Top Rank Boxing Series for, we did it for eight years. At the beginning of the series, we were joined by, a, a, we'd have dinner and there was, you know, I'm going to say five or six members of the crew uh, both director, producer, other crew members that joined us. I'm going to say about two or three years into the series, it was down to me and Barry. Uh, <laughs> because as one of them pointed out, I don't really want to remortgage my home so I can eat dinner every every uh, week with you guys. Because we were eating out weekly. It was a that series was about 48 times a year. So Barry, is, he's, he's very specific when it comes to uh, culinary uh, things. And, uh, and no, I don't think Barry has ever seen a, uh, an entree on any menu in any restaurant he's seen that's less than $30. So <laughs> um, now somebody that has a lot of acumen in the boxing world is, um, uh, is a man that does a wonderful, uh, Tommy Ankello, who does a wonderful um, uh, website called World Class Boxing, and uh, if you are interested in seeing some great uh, instructional videos about boxing, and more than that, historical as well, because they they educate you on what the style of famous fighters, but doing so through these videos that really explain the sport of boxing. It's they are extraordinary videos, and anybody can learn from them. And if you're a young amateur boxer or somebody that is aspiring to get into the sport, I really urge you to look at that. I wish, you know, back in the Stone Age when I was fighting as an amateur, I would have, and there was no internet, right? Uh, I believe yeah. there was Pony Express, but I'm not sure if there was internet. Uh, we, I would have loved to have seen these videos. So it would have been, uh, it would have been fun to look at. Uh, I believe we have exhausted our questions, but we uh, have. And, I, and by the way, can someone go on YouTube and see some of your fights from the younger days? No, they don't. I, you know, I don't even have any video. It's funny. The only video I have uh, 
that even of anything is when I went back, I should actually try and find this. We should show it. I went back and boxed in a celebrity boxing uh, tournament down in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I'm going to say I was in my mid-30s or so, mid to late 30s. So uh, two years ago. I've been on ESPN, and I, I went down there, and I boxed in that. And I think a little video exists, so I have to find that, and, and we, can, uh, we can put that up, and people can critique me and see how well I, how well I did. I still, uh, you know, it was some, many years after I'd actually boxed, but I did get myself in pretty good shape for it. And uh, I, bo- I, I boxed against this guy who was a former football player who was a, uh, a news anchor down in Lake Charles. He, he played football at McNeese State. And uh, he did outweigh me by about 35 pounds. So uh, I did have that going against me. But he wore this. I didn't wear a head, uh, any um, headgear uh, that was optional. You could. He wore this giant uh, headgear that, you know, sometimes you wear an extra big headgear when you, uh, when you spar. So uh, there was a point in the fight where I was kind of bouncing right hands off his head. And I could <laughs> tell I could have been hitting him with a bat. <laughs> and he would not know that he was being hit. And I, not that I was ever, even my amateur days, known for power, mind you. But I came back to the corner, and uh, uh, my friend Phil Daly was there with his sons, uh, Kirk. And uh, Kirk looked at me and said, man, Al, he said, you keep hitting this guy with right hands. I don't think it's getting through. I said, no, it's not getting through. I said, it's never going to get through. But anyway, it was a fun one. So I'm going to look for some video of that, and we can show people, and then they can, they can give me a hard time. And uh, now, Antonio Tarver once saw the video of me doing this fight. And he was complimentary to me, so he might have just wow. been nice. He probably did that and then turned and winked at whoever he was talking to. Anyway, uh, delightful visit today with Jerry Eisenberg. And uh, a reminder, next up on, uh, we have David Benavides, who will be uh, joining us uh, next week, uh, talking about his fight on March 13th. And then we're going to have our, our, uh, our new friend Snoop Dogg, who is uh, doing a, a new boxing series uh, and, of course, uh, which he's going to be commentating on uh, and uh, a big part of uh, promoting that. And, uh, and we're going to be chatting with him about not just boxing, but uh, all things Snoop Dogg. And, uh, you know, in doing research for this, uh, this interview, though, I, you know, you know about Snoop Dogg, but like everyone, you start looking back at things. Uh, the life he's lived is nothing short of extraordinary. So we'll have no lack of topics for sure to talk to him about. So my thanks to uh, Trip, of course, for co-hosting so well. And my thanks to the folks at Let's Do Something Productions for making this show possible. And also very much my thanks to Jerry Eisenberg. If you get a chance, go get his book, Once There Were Giants. Uh, it's uh, available on pre- it's re-released, available on pre-sale on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And also on April 27th will, in fact, be fully released for uh, uh, for sale. So uh, we'll see you next time.